This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I do kind of take the philosophy, like if some, if you're nervous about something, bachelor is kind of dangerous in fairness, but it, it isn't like clearly a dangerous, stupid idea, then that might be a sign to go towards it and show yourself you can do it, you can grow, you can turn into a, a you know, a person you didn't know who you were. You may have been cheated a little bit of this experience, but uh, because of who your bachelor was, but I actually... <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that because... <laughs> Hey guys, I'm Sydney Lutwako and welcome to Something to Share. Every Wednesday, I sit down with people you may have seen on your TV screens, experts in their fields, or just people I find inspirational so that they have a platform to dive into the things that they really want to talk about. We all have something to share, something that we're going through, and something that we need to hear. So let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Happy Wednesday, or whenever you press play. Thank you for being here. And I think this episode today really encompasses everything that I love to bring onto this show. So we have Jacqueline Trumbull on the podcast today. She was on season 22 of The Bachelor. Her bachelor was Ari. Um, She was known for, I guess she was labeled as the smart girl. She's incredibly brilliant, but she had to leave the show pretty far along um, after developing some strong emotions for Ari because of her job and she had to quit the show in order to go back to work. And it led to maybe some disappointment for the full experience for her. And I I totally understand that because myself included, I also quit my job to go on the show, which was very intense for me. And I also left the show early on my own as well. So it's a very wild experience for anyone that's going to go on The Bachelor Bachelorette, whether you make it to the end or not, you are entering this world that is very unique and only a very few amount of people get to experience. So there's a lot of highs and lows that come from that. And we absolutely cover those today. So we have a very open conversation on what it actually feels like to leave the show and the experiences that happen after it and how it really puts people into a social hierarchy, whether you sign up for that or not, um, and how that can affect your mental health and how that can affect um, how you view yourself, especially those two years after the show. It's a very interesting experience, guys. And I think you can really get an understanding from it with our conversation today. We are very honest. Um, I don't think a lot of people are that honest about the that aspect of the show as far as the social media, the experiences that people get from being on a show like The Bachelor, from a experience 
perspective and how it naturally puts anyone that goes on to a season into this kind of social hierarchy and that can affect how you view yourself. So we get into that. We also get into pretty much everything with Jacqueline. I love how open she is and how um, honest she is. We talk about her recent experience with her fertility journey. She recently froze her eggs and had kind of a scary experience going through the process where she found something in her ovaries and all of the things that happened from that and how that kind of had an effect on her relationship and her advice for looking into egg freezing or into taking a test like she had. I actually have taken this test as well, a modern fertility test. It's a at-home test that you can take that gives you the full spectrum of your fertility, how many eggs you have, kind of your levels. It's a very cool thing that you can do. Um, And it's not something that I have fully thought about yet, but it's definitely something that's in the back of my mind with where I'm at in life and the steps that I'm taking next in relationship and especially when it comes to aging, especially as a female. So we get into all of that and her kind of journey with that. And it's fascinating and luckily has a happy ending. Um, And she's recently engaged to Paul. We do get into the relationships and the reality of what relationships can look like and often do look like, but you don't always get to see that side of them or people don't always talk about, you know, the highs and lows of relationships and how it can require a lot of work, both on your relationship, but also with yourself. Um, Relationships always act as mirrors for the things that we are and all the things that we tend to need to work on in order to be in partnership. And yeah, it's a very humbling experience. And I love how open she is about how they found each other and how they choose each other every day, which I think is something that you have to do in relationships. It's, it is a choice and you have to be willing to put in all of the work that a relationship requires to flourish and how both parties need to be willing to do that work. And then we finish off with a really deep dive on mental health and some practices and all the things that she's learned. She's a very smart cookie and has a lot of knowledge and insights. And I absolutely love this conversation. So if you are someone that can relate to what we talk about, um, all we get into and know someone that could hear this conversation, please share it with them. I always love if you tag us on social media at Something to Share Podcast or myself at Sydney Latuaco. And like I said, this conversation really runs the gamut. There is a little part of it when we get into her relationship with Paul where she mentions something that could be like a trigger warning for people. So I'll put a little timestamp below in case you want to just fast forward that little section because I just want to be mindful of those listening. Make sure to check that timestamp if that's something that you want to just quickly fast forward through. We do get into this topic of mental health today and that's obviously something that is becoming very normalized nowadays, which I love. I love that people are having open conversations about it. And we do get into a little bit of like tools that you can help yourself with anxiety or certain things that you can do with your day to help support your mental health. So I decided for my something to share today, I was going to share like kind of my own routines and self-care practices that help me keep my mental health in check and, you know, just keep things at a good, even playing field. So every day we wake up, it's going to be a little different. Things happen, but I always try and include some practices early on in my day to help me start in the best way that I can. Nick is actually a really good advocate of this. He is very amazing with morning routines. He wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. He goes 
and sits on the couch and just has some like alone quiet time with himself and Dixie. And then he goes to the gym, which is his like mind body connection time. And then he comes home and showers and does it. It's a very like simple process, but he always does it every single morning. He wakes up early so he can have enough time in his day before he has to jump right into working. And it's his way of finding his center before the rest of the day will unfold for him and going to work and all whatever that day is calling for. Um, and I'm thinking about what mine are. And lately I've been trying to center my days and ground them in journaling. So usually it's just me writing out my to-do list for the day with working from home and having a lot of different directions that I work in. I have to really schedule myself and that can be a very hard thing to do when you don't have a boss that's telling you what to do at certain times. So I have to make sure I'm really staying on schedule and putting the things that are priority at the beginning of my day and working from there. Because if I just, you know, frolic around and start looking up things on Target or going on a deep dive on Instagram first thing in the morning, my day is going to be pretty much shot. So for me, I make sure that I don't go on my phone, meaning Instagram or the internet or TikTok or anything like that for the first like two hours. And some days I'm better at that than others. But I really try to set that boundary with myself because when I dive into those apps first thing in the morning, it really just throws off my energy and my focus for the day. So I make sure to, to do that. And then I just notice how I wake up. So some days I wake up, maybe I'm feeling anxious for certain things I have for that day or I need a little bit more of a grounding practice. Then I'll do some type of meditation um, I don't know if I've spoken about this on this podcast yet, but I've followed, I don't know if you guys know of Lacey Phillip. She is very well known for her manifestation practice. I've utilized her a lot throughout the years. Yes, for crafting my list and things that I want to um, accomplish and manifest if that's something that you believe in, but also for her ability, she works with the brain. She does a lot of subconscious work with her meditation. So it's basically a way of rewiring your thoughts and maybe experiences from early childhood or whatever it is in order to show up better in your life today and through blocks that you might have in life that might be holding you back currently. So she does a lot of that work, but also just a practice to have that can get you out of your mind and your thoughts and ground you in your body is really helpful for me. So sometimes that's meditating. Other times it's like taking a walk and listening to a podcast, being outside, breathing fresh air can do a lot for me. And I'm sure many of you get that. And I don't always get this time in the morning and I'm not always you know, as regimented as I should be to get all those things done. But those are just some practices that I have if I am very in my head or I need something to ground me in the day and out of my thoughts. Um, if it's later in the day and I have more of an opening in my schedule, I'll definitely take that walk. Exercise is a huge thing for me. It also helps. As I've gotten older, I feel like exercise has become less about my physical health. Yes, it's a huge factor, but more about like my mental health and getting me in more of a flow uh, with my thoughts and how I show up in a day. So there's just, a, just some very simple things. And when I'm writing my to-do list in the morning, if I notice running thoughts are something that I'm kind of working through, I will free write. I'll take two to three pages and just write out whatever emotion I'm feeling at the top and just kind of ramble from there. And then I'll close it and put it away. It's it's a way of releasing those thoughts and putting them pen to paper that helps them get from your brain somehow out into the world that makes them feel a little less daunting and sometimes less scary, if that makes sense. Um, so those are some things that help me. And it's just taking breaks. We 
all have such busy lives. We all have so many things to do in a day and we are so incredible how we can accomplish so much. But when you're not filling your cup and taking care of yourself and taking moments for yourself and doing the things that you love at some point in your days or your weeks, that stress can easily add up. So prioritize yourself, even if it's five minutes out of your day, even if it's just this one hour listening to this podcast, take the time that you need and fill up your cup. That's all for me today, you guys. Please enjoy this episode with Jacqueline. Before you go, I love a five-star review. I love reading and hearing from you guys. So message me if you have positive thoughts or things you want to hear on this podcast. I would love to hear from you. Without further ado, guys, here is Jacqueline. Let me just jump right on in. For my listeners who don't fully remember your story, I'm sure everyone knows who you are. Um, you are obviously on Ari season, season 22, I believe, right before me. Um, so a little background on you, what you do, and your, yeah, just a little gist on you. Sure. Um, I guess the big thing in my life right now is I'm, a, I'm getting my PhD in clinical psychology at Duke. So I'm a therapist. I see patients. I also do psych research. I'm living in North Carolina right now, although at the time I was in New York City, which was the love of my life. And I know we've shared our New York, we, we share a New York history and I guess escape. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling at the very end of your New York journey? Were you ready to leave, sad to leave? How long had you been there? Uh, it's kind of complicated. I've been there conse- like consecutively for three, three and a half years, but mm-hmm. I had started interning there when I was in college. So I would go up every summer. I also dated somebody long distance there for over a period of four years. So I would mm-hmm. say from the time I was like from 20 to 28, New York was a hugely prominent part of my life. Mm-hmm. I was very sad when I left. I really wanted to go to school in New York city, but the programs mm-hmm. are not, um, they're not super strong. And in particular, they, they're not super strong on funding. Oh. And so it's already hard to make it in North Carolina on a student stipend, but making it in New York city with no stipend yeah. is impossible. You have to get really so, creative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had really seen myself living in New York forever. Mm-hmm. I, I've honestly been afraid to go back. Like mm. I've been avoiding it almost because I'm worried that I'm going to go back. I'm going to miss it too much. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to have some sort of crisis mm-hmm. or that I'm going to go back and and not get it anymore. And that would be almost equally as strange. Yeah. I will, I will say the one transition that was happening was when I first moved, you know, in my early twenties, everything was so amazing and exciting and novel. And mm-hmm. I was getting to the point when I was 28 where like, you know, I'm not going to clubs. Like I've been to all the Burning Man events and all the weird, like, Brooklyn coffee shop. Bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just getting to a point where it was like drinking every night, going to another happy hour. And all of my friends like flew to different parts of the country as soon as COVID hit. So yeah, I know we shared that like love. Mine was like love hate by the end of it for <laughs> the city. But I, that's just, I stayed there too long when I got to that point of like, I need to get the hell out of here. Um, but I digress. Um, before we get into everything, I asked these two questions of everyone and I kind of want to just jump into it. So Mm -hmm. anything that you have Jacqueline from your nightstand surprising or with an interesting backstory for us to start us off. If I can go with bed, my, I have a stuffed animal sheep named Willie Wallace that I got when I was nine. And what's interesting about him is just the number of times that he has been destroyed over the years. Mm-hmm. He's like the love of my life. Like I, I really super personified him. And then 
you know, my dog like ripped his face off. And then years after that, like I, I got him sewn back up years after that, I was dating this guy. <clears throat> Some listeners may actually know him who, uh, got very angry with me and broke up with me in a pretty disturbing way, uh, including taking this poor stuffed animal having it hold a sign that says, fuck you, Jacqueline, my name spelled wrong. And then he drew a frown on his face in Sharpie. Oh my God. Yeah. So that was like the second time he was disfigured. And then this current dog has now eaten his face off twice. So I keep just having like, I'm like, God, this like object of mine that I value so much has been sewn up and like re-sewn. It just has this like sorted history, you know, jealous lovers and shit. She's been either at all. (laughs) I'm really curious on like what happened between you two. You don't have to get into detail. So like, what did you ever do to this guy that he would use something that is from your childhood to try and ruin you? Uh, One, I think the there were two things. One, I said something private about him to a friend and he went through my computer and messages and found that which is like, which one of us is more to blame there because the breach of privacy is pretty important to me. Um, the other thing is, I just think we had different ideas of how exclusive we were. Mm. And uh, I, you know, I thought it was pretty clear we were not exclusive. And I think at some point he had a mental turn into thinking that we were without vocalizing it. And I don't play by those rules. I'm yeah. like, if you if you want to switch the relationship, you have to have a conversation about it. It's good to have no doubts after a breakup like that. And by his actions, you there's no doubt in your mind that he is not the right person for you. <laughs> it was very clean. <laughs> Willie Wallace is going to be at the top of the scale, I'm sure, for you. So uh-huh. right, exactly. ridiculous. Um, last question. What is something that's on your heart or mind lately? Probably babies. Um, babies. Hardcore baby fever setting in, which is pretty fun. How old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? 30. 30, same. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've been teeter-tottering with the idea of baby fever. I'm not there yet, but yeah. I want to get into your kind of journey with a fertility because I know you went through an insane experience recently. So if you don't mind sharing with us, I would love to hear the whole breakdown of how everything happened for you and how everything kind of unfolded. Yeah. I'm very. It's very important to me that people check into their fertility health so that mm-hmm. my, I mean, my story has a happy ending, but um, you know, in part, that's because I found something and took care of it. So I originally checked into my fertility because Caroline Lunny was, you know, screaming this from the rooftops Mm -hmm. and I just did it with a modern fertility test and I got back a really quite high AMH level. AMH um, basically corresponds, the higher, the, the higher the hormone is, the more eggs you likely have. Mm-hmm. I got this very high number. So I was like, yeah, my fertility is awesome. We're going to be great. Mm-hmm. I was also, my fiance, Paul and I were not in a good place in our relationship and it was fairly new and I had pretty extreme commitment issues and I was just at the start of my PhD. And so a lot of my thinking around freezing eggs was <laughs> I'm just off of this single New York, mm-hmm. like semi-party girl persona and I don't feel ready for kids and I don't know when I'm going to feel ready for kids. And then also the advanced degrees in general really make having kids hard. I think academia in particular, although I'm sure, I'm sure doctors and lawyers probably, I just don't maybe know the field as well, but just for some context, I didn't know where I would end up permanently until I was 28 years old when I got into a program Mm -hmm. because the programs have such low success rates or acceptance rates. I really couldn't count on being in any given city. And so I couldn't really date all that seriously until I was here. But even then it's like, there's five years in the program. And then there's this year of internship where again, you have no idea what city you'll wind up in. 
And then there's two years of postdoc that can actually extend longer for people who are really academically um, inclined, which just means that's a lot of moving around. Mm -hmm. And if you then have a partner who's also on a professional track, then you're like, you have two different competing interests. And so I was thinking like, I don't know when I'm going to be able to have this kid. Even once I get a career, you know, then having a kid stall you at that point, it's just so complicated. So I was like, I want to freeze my eggs so that I can just have the same choices that men do. Then I can date like a man, which I had had been having a lot of fun doing for the past eight years. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. So I go to Dr. Amy in California and I went to her because Caroline spoke really highly of her. She's the egg whisperer. Um, She's the egg whisperer. Yeah. yeah. And she did an ultrasound and basically found that I only had six follicles. Um, and that was all in my right ovary. And then my left ovary had this huge mass over it, which was like basically preventing from producing any eggs. Um, six follicles is not a ton. I was hoping for something more around the number of 25, given my mm-hmm. AMH levels. I guess for people who don't know, a follicle is kind of like an egg house. It's like if there's the follicle, the egg grows inside it, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the egg is ready to mature. Mm-hmm. And when you freeze your eggs, you try to get all like as many follicles as you can to grow and grow and grow and grow. Whereas normally you would just get the one that grows and then releases an egg. You, they kind of all like, they all kind of compete and they, there's one that's chosen and that's the one that grows. So six was a pretty small number. At the time she thought it was endometriosis. So I went for months thinking I had endometriosis, which then would come back and really destroy my fertility over time. So I decided to be pretty aggressive about egg freezing. Um, and that also shifted up my timeline a lot where I was like, oh, I need to get pregnant now immediately because once I get this shit removed from my ovary, then I'm going to have this like little precious window of time Mm -hmm. where everything's working correctly. And then I can get pregnant. So that really sped up my relationship with Paul because he was thrilled to hear that I wanted to have kids right away. And he was thrilled that the marriage could happen quickly. By the time we found out that I didn't have endometriosis, that I actually have this scary tumor that it actually isn't all that scary, just scary looking, but Mm -hmm. it was benign and got that removed and nothing was wrong. We were already like our wedding venue had been booked and we were already committed. So uh, I went back to freeze for a second time and found out that I had over 20 follicles. So I got 14 frozen eggs and now I have a total of 18 and I'm in very good shape, but what's shocking is that it wasn't that hard to detect the tumor, but I'd never would have known to, to get the ultrasound Mm -hmm. and no gynecologist, I don't think would have ever suggested it to me. Mm -hmm. And so it was really through a much more complicated process of checking into my fertility that I found out, Oh, I have a fertility problem. Wow. Thank God. It's just frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) It's frustrating because then to happen someone like you who was told when you took a modern fertility test that you were healthy and everything was fine, if you hadn't gone to that further step, you probably wouldn't have known until it was too late. If you hadn't have detected it, would you have been essentially infertile or that would have been like a harder process or what would have happened if you hadn't found it? Yeah. The risk would have been that the tumor would have grown and then cut off blood supply to the ovary and done something called like ovarian torsion. So I basically would have lost the ovary and I would still have the right ovary. I don't, I don't know what the explanation is for that right ovary suddenly producing much more the second time I froze my eggs. Yeah. I don't know if somehow that I mean, Dr. Amy was giving some hypothesis about the tumor affecting that ovary as well. I, I really don't know. Um, but yeah, it's possible that I just would have all of a sudden felt like extreme shooting pain in, on my left side and lost an ovary. And then, but then maybe things would have been okay. Cause I had mm-hmm. still have a working right one or I would have had a really hard time getting pregnant for a really long time, not knowing why, and then maybe would have caught it then. Wow. Well, it sounds like it worked out 
luckily how it should have. What was the process of the egg freezing like besides that whole debacle, like the hormones and all of that? Like how was that process for you? Yeah. A lot of people get pretty affected by the hormones emotionally, um, which did not happen to me. I also don't have a problem with needles. So Mm -hmm. the, the whole process was pretty okay. Also having to like getting to go through it with a friend who was really knowledgeable helps. So I would say for anybody thinking about it, you know, stabbing yourself with needles in the stomach every day is probably a little daunting for some of you. They're very, very tiny, like tiny little shots and not so bad. And when you have the control over it, it might be better. You might get some emotional side effects. Mm -hmm. Also really concentrating on your fertility can be emotional, Mm -hmm. but the benefits of it, I just think so outweigh. All of my negative symptoms really came after the surgery when I would get this like monster PMS both Mm -hmm. times. There was just one day I just wanted to like murder my entire family. It was so irritable and just on edge. Uh, I really, I mean, it was like feeling like a teenager again. I couldn't believe it. It's like, I remember this from being 14. It's like crazy swings. It's the worst kind of pain. (laughs) Um, Were you still going through school and everything at the process? Like how did you prioritize your health with all of the crazy things that I'm sure you were doing at the same time? Yeah. The one thing that's nice about school and especially a... (laughs) especially clinical psychology is that all of your professors are therapists. Mm. And so they all really, you know, they really care about your well-being and your mental health. And so <laughs> very understanding about things like this. Very good. Also with the virtual world, I was able to do much of my work still. That's that good. Really cool about it. Have you always been the type that like plans ahead like this? Like I know you had a situation that led you to this process, but have you always been the one like, okay, I have this I have to do. I want this in, in the, as an end goal. Like you always think like that or just this was this situation kind of just specific with how it unfolded? I think with big life events I am and then with everything else I'm not at all. Like I would think ahead in terms of my career and in terms of dating. I, you know, I, I kind of had a timeline for when I wanted to find somebody, not super rigid one, but I put myself out there a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I was sort of systematic about that, but it was also something I enjoyed. And then career, you know, I mean, I, I just had to be, and that's something that makes me anxious, but in general, I'm a pretty spontaneous and I'm a horrible planner and really disorganized. So yeah. It works out when you need it to. <laughs> um, I think you mentioned this maybe on Instagram, but you said that you had commitment issues and this oh, yeah. kind of affected your relationship with Paul. And you'd mentioned mm-hmm. that you guys are kind of going through a rough patch right before this fertility situation happened. So how did you transform from a non-committal person to dating a lot and dating like a man, as you referenced? Um, how did you go from that to this relationship that you're in now? Like, what was the process for you guys? The shortest answer is anti-anxiety meds. We both went on them and oh. it, it like changed everything dramatically. Right. There is a much longer story. I mean, I think moving to a place that isn't New York facilitated me settling down more. Um, COVID, I also think, helped in the way where there wasn't any such thing as FOMO because there's nothing to miss out on. And it helped me become more interested in like hobbies and domestic things like cooking. Um, but yeah, we had a really rough... He his This isn't private information. His father killed himself when he was three. His mother in turn like became quite close and protective over her kids, not necessarily in a bad way, but he just has, he basically developed like pretty bad separation anxiety. And at the same time, I'm kind of more avoidantly attached. And so Mm -hmm. I would need a lot of space and him coming closer to me would make me run away. Mm -hmm. And so we had this like really bad dynamic. He would try to like lock me down more and I would be just like doing anything I could to get out of the, the cage. This manifested in like a lot of jealousy on his part. 
Um, and then also a lot of like withholding love and affection on my part. And it just came to a boiling point. I kind I mean, I honestly, I kind of gave the antidepressant, um, ultimatum because he was like, really, he was really against it. And it's, it's hard because I'm not going to like force anybody to go on meds, but yeah. it was also such an anxious process. And my mom's a psychiatrist. So I just like grew up with meds, like really normalized. And I was just like, I'm going to get on this to mm-hmm. see if I can stop my like constant churning and like, ext- like real fear of settling down. And like, what if I choose the wrong person? What if I'm wasting my life? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if mm-hmm. it worked really well, but it's definitely something we're still contending with. We got in a fight a couple of days ago where this whole process was triggered again, mm-hmm. but before our first year relationship, it would have taken us like three days to get out of it. And then we would be good for like a week or two. And then we'd have another massive fight. This was resolved like more or less within an hour and led to like, I think deepening connection and understanding. Mm -hmm. So a big part of me choosing Paul was realizing like, yeah, this is far from perfect, but there's so much growth potential here. Like the content of River Hate Fights can be the same. We're the way we're handling it is growing so much. And he's really reflective and able to say like, I fucked up in these ways and this is what I want to work on and how. I like that you said you chose him. And I think that's not everyone says that, but it's very true. Like you choose your partner. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. people feel like with relationships that when they fall in love, it's like a fairy tale ending in a way, like everything kind of works out because you found your partner and you like guys love each other. So obviously everything works out naturally. But I think that choice thing is very good of you to say because it is a choice. Like you can find all these reasons to fall out of it if you don't continue to work on it every day. So what for you guys brought you back to each other initially when you were doing the anxious things and um, having those issues? Like what was the thing that kept bringing you back? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, I will say that I actually think that was really core to my commitment issues was expecting to, for it to be a choiceless thing, you know? Oh, it really like, and it's not stupid because that's how it's always portrayed. Like Cupid's bow, Cupid's arrow hits you. And then the choice has been made for you. That's the ultimate romance is that you don't have to do the work yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't have to change. You don't have to like realize all these, I don't know, assumptions you've had might need some work. And I would always get to this point with guys where I'd like, fall in love really fast. And then there'd be this moment where I'd pull back sharply and say, actually, no, this is wrong. I don't, mm. And then something would break and then I would leave. And I'm not honestly all that sure what kept me in with this. Cause that definitely happened. I, I think part of it was being able to actually to say that to him and it wound up causing a whole host of problems. But at the same time, he was really committed to sticking it out. And I wanted to do something different and stick it out. And there were so many, there was just so much potential for us, I think. Honestly, I think part of me also just wanted to beat my own pattern and like mm. really stay for once. Mm. And when we broke, we we broke up when I, there was that kind of medication ultimatum. We broke up and part of me was like, yes, this is my chance to be free again. And then within 24 hours, I just find myself talking to him constantly again mm-hmm. and like saying, yeah, actually, okay, I will go back to this. So there was something in me that kept going with it until eventually I just found myself comfortable. (laughs) And it was just, it was very uncomfortable for a while. I'm aware it doesn't sound like the most romantic story, but I think maybe that's what's screwing people up these days is that they're only getting these like really Mm -hmm. romantic stories portrayed and they're not realizing that sometimes it, it's not that you need Cupid's bow. Sometimes it's that you need to work on your own shit and like figure out what's holding you back from investing. No, I like that you are very real about that because I think we keep being fed the same story. And when we keep being fed that story, when we line up our own story to that 
thing that we thought it's supposed to be. We feel like it's not enough or it's not right for us. But when you're people like you are real about what it actually can feel like and how it is work, but it's making sure that the partner that you're choosing is worth mm-hmm. that work, which it sounds like you guys both decided that for yourselves, which I think is important to have those conversations because again, we we're just like fed the same old fairy tale. Like we grew up in the 90s where Cinderella yeah. was like in all the fairy tale stories we were told as the end all be all. And I love those movies, <laughs> but it's nice to have, you know, some reality put into it. And it, it, I don't know, I think it helps me at least. And I'm sure other people like realize, oh, everyone goes through that and it's okay to have like ups and downs in relationships. And that's how life is going to be. And the fact that relationships do usually act as a mirror for what we need to work on. Uh-huh. I know it's done that for me almost immediately. <laughs> okay. So it's fun. It's really fun. Um, but I think it's important because it's only going to make you better if you are continuing to work. But I think it's also having a partner that's willing to do that work and grow with you. I think another thing was like, this really was my first legitimately long relationship. I had some stupid things in the past, but I think it was really easy for me to cut out on a relationship and run. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just fall in love again. It'll all be great. And then once I get into a long relationship and realize how much work it is, I'm like, Oh shit. Like mm-hmm. I don't need to like enter the dating market and do all of this again. This is different yeah. than I thought of just, I'm in love now and we're going to mm-hmm. hold tightly to each other forever. It's, it is both is work. I mean, it just depends on which work you want to do. Like going out and dating is a lot of work, yeah. but also relationships are a lot of work. So it's like picking which one you're, you're ready for. Right. Um, you guys have a very interesting, even further love story where you proposed to him, mm-hmm. picked your venue before you even got engaged. So talk yeah. me through this. <laughs> yeah. Kind of fascinating. <laughs> this actually honestly just goes along with the theme of like, uh, yeah, it's not as, it's not a storybook as mm-hmm. we thought it would be. Like, I, I always thought like, yeah, I'll just be so surprised by his, his asking me that he wants like for me to marry him. Like, oh my gosh, that'll mean that he really loves me. And in this real relationship, I was like, wait a minute. It's so, the process is so reversed. Maybe not for everybody, but for mm-hmm. us, it was like, we we're talking about marriage so early and then kids and the, you know, the fertility stuff came up. And once that kind of thing comes up, you really decide, is this the person that I'm going to have kids with? And mm-hmm. so we had those conversations before, like if he just randomly got on one knee and proposed to me, I would have just said, do it again. Like I need something more bombastic than this because I already know you want to marry me. Duh. We've talked about this a thousand times. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So we booked the wedding venue, I think right around the fertility crisis, just because yeah, we're like, we need to get married and have kids. Let's do this thing. And then we found this awesome venue. And as we were doing that, he was planning this proposal that he wanted to do. So Paul is a big planner and he's the opposite of me in all sorts of ways. And he, it's very important for him to surprise. And my favorite thing about him is that when he puts his mind to something, he does it at like a hundred thousand percent. So I was like, this proposal is going to be fucking awesome. I know that because it's Paul. So I'm going to let him have all the time he needs to plan it. And then I just happened to mention to him, like, you know, I had kind of thought of proposing to you once because I realized if you just asked me if I wanted to marry you, it wouldn't even be that special because like, I already know that. I know that. Um, but you're the one who's kind of been more uncertain about how I feel. And mm-hmm. so f- that would really be like, you know, you would get the, that gratifying information. But then even that passed because then it was clear that I wanted to marry him too. But because I said that, he was like, well, now I want one. And it was really more of just of like, well, I want my own party and my own special day. So you do that and then I'll propose to you. Mm-hmm. So we both knew like what was going to happen, but we like celebrating things and like having as many anniversaries as possible and just reasons to get out and do something. So, yeah. 
20 he to sounds 10. very strong in his masculinity, which I really appreciate that he was like, yeah, I want to get proposed to because most dudes are like, ew, no, like I'm the d- guy and I have to do that. So I appreciate that he was like, no, I want one too because it's fun to celebrate your love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's another favorite thing about him is that, yeah, the confidence in the masculinity thing is big because there's no like, ooh, that sounds lame. I want to watch football instead. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm like, I want to watch a clothing designing sh- show. He's like, okay. And then halfway through, he's like, we should get a sewing machine and learn how to sew. This would be fun. So he, there's just nothing that's too lame or too girly for him, which that. just makes for a good best friend. Yeah. And it makes for like a great life together because yeah. you'll never know what you're going to get into next. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I want to point out too, it sounds like I'm kind of like rationalizing this now. Almost when you're dating, when you're in your 30s and when you're older, it's way easier to have those conversations like fertility and marriage. Like they seem to come up a lot quicker, which I remember in my 20s, you have to like avoid acting like you like the guy. You have to avoid like you want anything serious. And it's interesting how like once you turn a certain age, everyone's like, well, yeah, are we going to be able to last (laughs) – it's like almost very unromantic in a way, but also romantic. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating that how we kind of make a shift because our priorities shift that we're like, yeah, we have to figure out if this is going to work, which becomes, I guess, in a way less romantic, but I can still appreciate it. You may have been cheated a little bit of this experience, but uh, because of who your bachelor was, but I actually. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that because I'm <laughs> kind of pissed. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed that aspect of The Bachelor and that made me more comfortable going forth and dating. Um, mm. Really sitting down with Ari on like a first date and being able to talk about the future or actual intentions was pretty powerful. And it showed me how stupid it was to go out on dates with guys and just pretend to be this cool girl who doesn't even have an eye to the future and is just taking things, you know, day by day. Mm-hmm. So I was very New York dating mm-hmm. style. That was me all the time in New York City because it felt like with the the guys I was dating there, they were horrified of anything serious or like any questions that involves anything besides the moment right now or the potential of having sex later that night. Like yeah, that's exactly. all they cared about. <laughs> so, I mean, I went on really bad dates. So it's not everyone, but most people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely feel like my bachelor experience was a little bit robbed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted I went into that situation because I want to I want to ask you how what your mindset was going on the show. But I went into that situation taking myself out of my normal life of like doing the regular dating scene in New York City and being frustrated and putting so much focus on my career and no, no focus at all on dating. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of just like a flippant thing that I did on the side. But then I was like, okay, I'm committing to this process. I'm taking this big leap of faith and I'm going on this crazy show and I'm gonna date this guy. And <laughs> and all we talked about was like. We didn't talk about the weather, but basically that's what most of our conversations were about was like the weather, that what sucks. we did that day. It's just like very not romantic and not – there's no like hot and heavy and I, I chopped that up to like me at the time. But it's nice having like this, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty and realizing that wasn't the case. So I'm wondering for you, like what – why did you want to go on the show? Because I think you and I are maybe not the typical people they have on the show like as far as – I tend to be quiet and I know you're like very like you're very on the education track and it's I feel like there's maybe one every season that is like that but you are rare for the franchise and I really appreciated you on the show so like what was your mindset at least going on The Bachelor for you? So first of all I did I also wanted to say that I really appreciated your breakup with him because you were so matter of fact almost like there was no (laughs) 
it wasn't even very much emotion. emotion. You're just like, <laughs> like I, <laughs> like, is there yeah. anything here? Yeah. Is it just like, me? Do you right. feel anything for me? No. Great. Cool. Great. Really? Thought so. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, it is kind of ironic because you went on for really romantic reasons and then mm-hmm. broke up with him and in a very kind of emotionless, pragmatic way. And then I went in for totally not romantic reasons and then left very emotional. <laughs> like, I went on for the adventure. I mean, I didn't sign up for it myself. Like my friend nominated me and I guess he was sort of serious about it, but I just took it as a joke and then completely forgot it happened. I think, I mean, I might even have been like dating somebody at the time. It, it was just so like, he would just send me texts like, what's your height and weight? I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Here you go. I, I wasn't paying attention to it. Like, yeah. so when they called, I was just floored. And then I continued to be floored by how easy the audition process was. I think I, so I've always like had a high proportion of my friends who are much older and I can resonate more, I think with like, <laughs> middle-aged people and so since the audition process was all of these like middle-aged people exactly yeah like I got they made me comfortable like there's mm-hmm. I was very very intimidated about going on and meeting the other women mm-hmm. and and the bachelor um although I really like Arya's chosen because he's so like kind of like sheepish and he's actually really confident but there's there's this like boyish energy that he puts out they called and it was horrible timing I had just started this new job that I really really needed and then obviously like this led to my breakup mm-hmm. but it, it was I'm such an like I said this on the show like experience junkie like part of what I loved about New York was oh my gosh today I'm at this random bar and everybody is snorting cacao so I'm going to snort cacao because that's something I haven't <laughs> tried before, even though it's yeah. stupid and like has no, you know Nothing what I mean? happens. <laughs> yeah. You just have a black nose. <laughs> exactly. That burns like a lot. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just that kind of like, I always have to try things and mm-hmm. this terrified me. And so I know if something terrifies me that I probably have to do it. Um, mm, that could work for your advantage and very much disadvantage in other situations but yeah I mean if something is just so clearly dangerous and a stupid idea and doesn't provide any benefit then I'm not pressured into it but I do kind of take the philosophy like if some if you're nervous about something bachelor is kind of dangerous in fairness but it it isn't like clearly a dangerous stupid idea then that might Mm -hmm. be a sign to go towards it um because you'll solve a sort of a crisis within yourself you'll solve you'll solve a conflict and show yourself you can do it you can grow you can turn into a, a you know, a person you didn't know who you were. So I really just was so fascinated by the experience of putting myself into the hands of other people and seeing what happened, um, of peering behind the, you know, velvet ropes of this like fame experience and Mm -hmm. this whole bachelor show that I've been watching for a really long time of meeting all these people, of challenging myself, of, of all the, the dates and like the challenges they're in, like, wrestling like luchador wrestling on my first date was something that would have terrified me but I did it and now I know oh I can put on a stupid dress and wrestle against somebody who's like three times stronger than me and get my head beat into the floor in front of an audience and that's fine you know and I actually have fun at the end so in terms of the romantic aspect like it didn't exist I was like there's no way the bachelor's gonna like me there's no the odds are so against me I didn't even understand going in with a romantic intention Mm-hmm. The only promise I made to myself was be open to it. You'll have a more fulfilling experience if you let yourself fall for this guy. Mm. And that's what I did. I wouldn't say I fell in love, but I fell yeah, but 
It sounds like it almost surprised you, the experience, because you sounded like very logical going into it and almost knew how it was going to go. But I love that it ended up differently for you. How did it affect then for you dating after the show? Like what changes did you make or did you make changes after the experience? I remember thinking at first, like, yeah, I'm changed. I'm going to have these more serious conversations and like really talk about marriage and everything. And I I feel like I did that to some extent, but also as soon as I got off the show, I called this guy that I'd met right before the show and was like, Hey, want to resume? Like I had met him like two weeks before the show and he lived in Hawaii. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like I had a boyfriend going on, but Mm -hmm you know, resumed with him. And then that kind of fizzled in a very classic, like he lost interest in me. And then I felt like a fool kind of way. So that I think kind of took away some of the, like some of the confidence boost of the show. Yeah. I do think that I thought of myself as a more bold, courageous person, but I also think that it made it really difficult to date in that period because I was so obsessed with the show. I was so obsessed with the online feedback. Bachelor in mm-hmm. Paradise was the next thing. And so I think mm-hmm. men saw me as like not in a serious part of my life. Yeah. Did you have any of like the emotional things that I feel like almost everyone goes through after the show? Or were you just on this dating journey and kind of avoided that for yourself? Like what were, what were your emotions like after leaving the show? Because you left in a very intense way. You had to leave for your job. Yeah. And I feel like you didn't get to tell him that or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How was your emotion after? I think Ari got really conflated with the experience itself and with Mm -hmm. the opportunity for fame and money. So Mm -hmm. I've often actually said in podcasts, like, yeah, part of me regrets it. And I should clarify that it wasn't that I regretted breaking up with Ari. It was like leaving the show before I necessarily had to. And then all of the angst that came with getting my airtime removed and um, things sort of edited down in a, I don't know, just like a less serious way. Mm-hmm. And then like watching my friends go get all these opportunities that I felt like I had forfeited. Um, yeah. so coming off the show, I still had feelings for Ari for like a couple of weeks. I remember I was able to text him like really like a really quick back and forth just to say like, I miss you. And he's like, yeah, I miss you too. I've been thinking a lot about you. So that, that kind of thing. But then I, again, like I was like this Hawaii guy, like it was that was a yeah. much more natural fit. And so I, <laughs> my, my feelings turned quickly to him, mm-hmm. but my angst really came from, I had this huge opportunity. I thought I was going to get kicked off like the first three weeks. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. My, like my view of myself is changing. Like, am I one of the hot, cool girls? Like, do I get to be that kind of person who deserves fame and can hold this and everything? And then like, oops, mm-hmm. nope, never mind. Uh, and then just people were super mean online and there was somebody spreading rumors about me. And so I had to deal with all the stress of that. And mm. so I just, I didn't handle that aspect as well as I thought that I would have. And I would say that I was really anxious and really angry for like two years. Yeah, I know. I feel that. I feel like it's, it's something that everyone goes through, even if they do get like more of what that you could have gotten, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like there's always that underlying feeling of like, oh, she has like a little bit more of a falling or she got mm-hmm. the more more notoriety or which yeah. is like ho- horrible to say. And everyone's like, that's like the thing that you're not supposed to say. But it is like it becomes a comparison thing naturally, especially at those first two years off the show, because, yes, you get to see your friends go do these awesome things. And it's not like an ego thing. It's more of just like a an experience thing. And you, for whatever reason, that show just it puts people on different pedestals based on viewership, editing, so many things that go into it. So it's easy to feel like, oh, I wish I would have had this experience. Maybe these things would have gone differently. But once you get out of them, it's like, oh, who cares? <laughs> That's yeah. how I feel now. But at the time, I could totally 
I totally remember those feelings of like, I wish I would have had this because I think both of us too are very career driven. So you just think of like ways that we could have, you know, elevated those things. Right. I think what was really frustrating was that a lot of people online too were saying that I was desperate and pathetic and like that I thought I was above everybody else, but really I'm just another like thirsty, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, yeah, for leaving the show for, no, for like, for, I would come on podcasts like this and be fairly honest about like, yeah, I'm, I am jealous of my other castmates. I'm like, I feel bad about this, this, and this. Um, I love that you do that. Thank you. Um, (laughs) it's it's maybe better in retrospect once that's passed, you know, but at the time I just got so much ridicule for it. And I'm like, it, it just, it was a feeling of being super misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And then people would start warping the things that I had said. And so I, I just felt like really alone in feeling the jealousy and the insecurity mm-hmm. and the anger. And then it, it would get distorted. And then I would just make me angrier and angrier. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty impossible, I think, not to feel those things because there's an immediate social hierarchy that happens. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, my friend has 600,000 Instagram followers. That friend has 1 million. I have 50. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. It's, it just gives you such immediate yeah. information. That's yeah, just it's going literally to like data. <laughs> yeah, it's like data. <laughs> it's data on yourself. You're like, oh, great. This is where I line up against all 30 of those women. Yeah. Like, oh, that friend is uh, getting a free trip to hang out with celebrities right now. And yeah. uh, I'm uh, working. <laughs> yeah. There are just certain assets that, that suck. But now when I look at people in that world, I just almost feel bad. I'm like, you are going through this chaos. And I don't even know if you know it yet, but it's so mm-hmm. much calmer and more peaceful on the other side. Yeah. 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 And it can also, I think it leads to authentically what is probably best for each individual. And it seems like now with the work that you're doing and the choices that you've made, it's gotten you to exactly where you're supposed to be, but it's hard yeah. in the time after where you're like, well, what if I was there? What if I could have done this? But yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard wait, waiting for life to work out the way. Like, I didn't know I was going to yeah. get into Duke. As soon as I got into Duke, I was like, hallelujah. Like, it, the bet paid off. And that was yeah. such such a relief. But until then, no. <laughs> I love that. I'm wondering then for you, now that you've, you're in this, like, full education process and you've learned so much about mental health and all of that, like, were you able to analyze yourself post-show or analyze certain things that you learned that maybe helped you? Or was it annoying to know more? of the reasons why you were acting or feeling the way that you did. It wasn't annoying to know more. I don't think there's been much research on the effects of fame. Um, so I, I haven't learned, I mean, I'm sure there's things I've learned that are relevant, but um, it, it still feels like that situation was so outside the realms of like normal human, human experience mm-hmm. that it's hard to say. Yeah. God, how would I treat somebody going through that? I think so much of it is just like a passage of time and that's a hard thing to, to wait for. But mm-hmm. to me, I see the situation is just like super clear. You're put into like that degrading of a social hierarchy that it's just so likely to result in, in anxiety and anger. You're mm-hmm. being like shit on constantly online. It's just so clearly going to, to lead to these things. Yeah. So there's a lot of cognitive work you can do and, you know, try to like restructure your thoughts around it. And mm-hmm. um, you can set boundaries and not go on Reddit, which is like the advice Never for go everybody. On Oh, those are some of my darkest days is going on Reddit. Oh, absolutely. 
I totally agree. It almost is like I'm finding a parallel right now between like social media in, in general for people. I think there's a hierarchy there that people are seeing, like even with like the rise of TikTok. And I was I've been watching on Netflix. It's called High Pass. It's a horrible show. It's but it's about this um, all these TikTokers that live in a house together and they have like bajillions of followers between each other and they just make like little videos and they they have so much anxiety and so much like depression and all these things that you wouldn't imagine someone with like all these millions of followers and all the money and all the things that they could ever want. But there's also this underlying like anxiety and things like that, which is so interesting, I think. Yeah. Well, I wonder it's, why that is. I mean, I have some hypotheses. So one thing we do know is that anxiety and depression and um, self-harm behavior are like rising pretty precipitously in adolescence. And that we don't know if it's because of social media, but the timing is certainly suspicious because it happened mm-hmm. basically like concomitant with the rise of social media. Um, I think when your entire job is to present yourself inauthentically, it's going to make you pretty unhappy. Mm. Also, when you do take a risk and present yourself authentically or attempt to, it's still only sort of a little decontextualized piece of who you are. And then you immediately get like nasty comments from other people, then that's going to bring you down instantly. Um, You are interacting with people who are anonymous, who don't care about you in any real legitimate yeah. way. Uh, and then, you know, it's like social media has been compared to road rage a million times, but it's still an apt comparison. Like people are just going to be mean because they can hide behind uh, their screen name. So mm-hmm. it's it just, and, and then, yeah. And then you get the data effect of like my friend over in the next room just got 40,000 views, I guess mm-hmm. on their TikTok video. And I got 20,000. Now I can't feel good about the fact that actually that's a huge number. Mm-hmm. I'm actually like, I haven't made a single TikTok and I don't know if I ever will. Maybe for the podcast, it's, but I'm, I'm afraid yeah. of joining that. It's like, yeah, it's a lot of highs and lows because with TikTok, it's nice where there's virality so easily. So it's a great way for businesses and people mm-hmm. to grow really fast, but it's also <laughs> a very easy. Then you become more vulnerable. The more, yeah. the more that you're on a platform, the more that you have eyes on you, the more vulnerable you are. So there's so many pros and cons with it all. So yeah. And it's just a lot of work in general. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's why I haven't, like, I barely know how Instagram works. I don't even make my Instagram stories very pretty. And part of that is just, most of it's probably laziness, but a big part of it is just, I remember when I did put that effort into my Instagram and I was very unhappy while I was doing it. Mm -hmm. So I almost don't want to invest more of myself in something that I know just has negative returns. One more question on this like whole anxiety thing. Like what are some ways from your knowledge and your research, like we can all work on these things? You said medication earlier, but like what are some like tools or tactics that we can help? Because I feel like anxiety is huge right now. Depression, especially after the pandemic is major. Yeah. Any like tools or practices? One, uh, I mean, so mindfulness is really great. And that doesn't mean that I'm telling everybody to go out and meditate right now. But if you find that you are spiraling. Um, one thing that can help is to, you really just want to put some space between your emotion and your reaction to it, because the, the reaction is what can actually exacerbate the anxiety. Cause then you wind up, you know, not paying attention to something you need to pay attention to or, or reacting, like, uh, being nasty to other people or avoiding something that could make you happier. So you want to find some space there. So one thing is if you notice you're spinning out, take a deep breath and then anchor yourself to something um, in the room that breath is super easy because breath is always with you. Um, but if you don't like that internal of an experience, you can literally just like look at your hands and notice, mm. but what's the texture of my hands? And you just, you're just trying to get yourself oriented to the present moment for a few seconds. And then you really take a stock. Like, what am I thinking right now? 
what am I feeling in my body and what actions, like what, what, what are my behaviors at the moment? Oh, like my shoulders are really tense. Okay. That's something I can actually relax because the more I tense, the more it's going to give feedback to that emotion. So the more anxious I'm going to feel. Okay. So that's one thing I can do. Oh, I'm thinking that let's say you're in class and there's a lecture and there's an exam that's just been talked about. Like, I'm thinking that I'm going to absolutely fail the exam and there's nothing I can do about it. Okay. Well, that's an unhelpful thought process. Maybe tell myself a little bit more grounded in reality. If I study, I can possibly succeed. I can do some problem solving around that. And then how am I behaving? Well, I stopped listening to the lecture and I started spinning out instead. So what's one thing I can do to get myself back on track in the present moment? And then you do it. So if it's taking very deliberate notes of even verbatim with the professor saying just anything to get you back in. Hmm. So the goal really there is to stop forward thinking and past thinking, because that's where you're going to spin out. And that's also what you can't control and to get yourself present focused and also not to judge yourself for the feelings that you're having. Mm-hmm. So, because once you start judging yourself then you're just piling on negativity. Yeah. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is if you, if you start noticing behaviors that aren't working for you, just literally do the opposite, unless of course the opposite isn't good or isn't justified, but um, you know, let's say like you apologize excessively, like excessively. And that can also have a feedback like, oh, I'm somebody who's constantly sort of submitting myself to another person. I'm always telling somebody that I'm somebody I have to apologize for. Instead, Mm -hmm. thank them, put your shoulders back, say something super confidently, just sort of try to start doing the opposite of the behaviors that aren't serving you. Um, I've always wondered this about therapy and psychologists. How do you maintain your own mental health when you're taking in so much of other people's stories, emotions, all of that? Do you, do you find practices or things that you do for yourself to help combat those? Or like, how do you guys maintain like the boundaries, I guess, with your own emotions from someone else? Yeah. So it's really different by person. Um, so I will say I, so like, if you think about the empathy, it's actually kind of a confusing process. We haven't defined it very well, but mm-hmm. in general, we can think of it as like, there's cognitive empathy, which is where you sort of mentally understand really well what another person's going through. Then there's emotional empathy, which is where you feel what they're feeling. Like you kind of mm-hmm. take on the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a emo- emotion regulation, which basically means like, okay, even though I'm, I'm maybe getting down with these emotions, I can regulate and then extend help. I am much higher on cognitive empathy than affect empathy. So my patients don't tend to get me down. I don't tend to wear their pain. Mm. Um, So I can talk all day long about trauma and actually sleep okay at night. Mm. And that might seem kind of fucked up for a therapist, but it actually allows me to keep doing it and avoid burnout. Um, Perfect for a therapist. Yeah. yeah, In some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I don't have to do any kind of self-care right around that actually therapy puts me in a position where I feel confident and like I'm in the, like a lot of times at work, I feel really insecure because I'm in the like submissive position. Like I'm like, well, my boss is going to be mad at me or like, I have to get this in at time and therapy, I feel much more in control. And so I actually find like a lift from it mm-hmm. and it's just plain interesting. And like, I get to have an hour conversation with somebody I care about. So mm-hmm. I love that work. But other people, yeah, it really leads to therapist burnout. Um, people often can't take clinical work for very long because of that. And you just have to find what works for you. Like in general, my self-care is taking really, 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 really long baths um, Mm -hmm. or gardening or going outside, getting fresh air. So you just have to see what is actually likely to work for you in the moment. 
Love it. I want to take these last few moments for you to kind of plug your podcasts and sure. speak on what you guys are doing because I love I loved being on. I, I felt like I was in therapy. Like I felt <laughs> emotions. I was like going through it. Um, and I love what you guys are all about. So a little on your podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so my podcast is a little help for our friends. And the reason it's called that is there's a lot of mental health podcasts already out there, but we're really trying to talk not just to the person who's suffering, but to their friends and family so that their friends and family can feel less alone and frustrated and tired, you know, taking care of this person and extending themselves so that they can actually know here's something I can do to really help my friend. Here's a boundary I probably need to set. Here's how to set a boundary. Um, and yeah, we just try to kind of like bring awareness to these different disorders, help people understand them more, help them understand like, oh, that's where this behavior is coming from. It's, it's coming from this process. It's not coming from them being a bad person or a selfish person. It's it's coming from depression, for instance. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, my co-host is Kibby McMahon. She is a clinical psychologist, also graduated from Duke. And we have, if we don't know enough about a topic, we'll have an expert come on. And our experts are usually people from um, very prestigious, you know, Stanford, Harvard, Duke, et cetera. Incredible. So, and then sometimes we interview people like Sydney. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm also last... from, from Harvard and Duke. <laughs> yeah, for but sure. You, but I'm you a world can, scholar. It's sometimes though, like you burn out on listening to experts and you want to hear people yeah. who can just speak really personally about an experience. So yeah, we love talking to you on. Thank you. Um, I have one more question on what you do. Like for people who are trying to recognize either for themselves or for maybe their friends or their family when mental health might not be fully in check or they might need some help. What are some signs or some ways that are good indications of knowing that? I mean, it, I guess it depends on the disorder, yeah. but I would say like, what do you feel like every day? <laughs> you know, I mean, are you like very simply, are you feeling good? Are you happy? Because therapy isn't just reserved for, yeah, I mean, if we think about like doctors, like it's, it's not just for the cancer patients, right? It's, you can seek therapy when it's, you don't have to wait for a crisis to hit. Mm -hmm. If you're finding it really hard to get out of bed, if you've lost interest in the things you normally enjoy, if you just find out that if you just think like so much of my day is taken up by anxiety that I'm just not able to get things done. My work is suffering. My relationships are suffering. Like there's something being impaired in my life. It's, it's, because I don't feel like I can operate well enough to attend to it, then those would be signs. Love it. Thank you. Um, Jack Jacqueline, what's like one last piece of advice or one leaving thought that you want to end us on? I would say it's, we say this in our podcast all the time about validating others. It's also important to validate yourself. So if you notice like, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling sad. Why am I feeling that way? That's so stupid. Everybody's having a hard time right now. Why am I having such a hard time? Like, why can't, well, now you're just making your mood tank. Mm. And if instead you could say, I'm sad right now because I haven't been able to leave my house in three days or because I don't know what's going to happen in the world or just because, and that's okay to sometimes be sad. You're keeping that mood contained and you're keeping it just the original emotion. Mm. So really like learn how to talk to yourself the way you would to, you know, a friend, um, and, and learn how to say my emotions are my emotions. It's okay that I'm experiencing them. I don't have to be judgmental. Hmm. I guess that's what I'd say. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Where can everyone find you, follow you, your podcasts when you have episodes out, all that stuff. So we have episodes out every Wednesday, similar to like another us. show I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can find us on all the major podcast platforms. Again, it's a little help for our friends, not to be confused with a song. You can find me on Trumbolina on Instagram, which is T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L-I-N-A. So it's like the bowl and Thumbelina mixed. 
and uh same on twitter although i'm much more active on instagram that's about it thank you so much thank you that is it for me today you guys thank you so much for being here and for listening before you go make sure that you rate review and follow as well as subscribe so you never miss an episode and one thing you can share in the meantime this podcast obviously send it to a friend who needs some inspiration or give us some love on social media and tag us at something to share podcast on instagram and i'll see you next wednesday